if you just have open space, if it's just no limitations whatsoever, you get lost in, in the potential of what could be. But as soon as you add one limitation to it, as soon as you say, okay, I'm going to make a scene where I don't speak, then you have to find interesting ways to solve that problem. Welcome to this episode of the For What's Ahead podcast. I'm your host, James Snyder. Let's get ready to listen. Welcome back to the For What's Ahead podcast. Today I'm joined by three-time Jeopardy champion and FCDS class of 97 alum, Skip Long. How are you, Skip? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm, I'm really excited for this. Yeah, let's do it. We, we have plans for, for Mr. Barrier. Yes, and I want to start with that. My first question is going to be the question that I asked Mr. Barrier when I did his interview. What were some of your favorite memories as an FCDS student? I think a lot of the experiential stuff stays with you. Um, I, I mean, I, of course, I could go back and talk about the Odyssey in, in 10th grade English or things like that, but I, I think the times that stick with me specifically are times where you get to spend time with the people and go and um, experience life at that at that burgeoning age, particularly in when I was here, which was 10th through 12th grades. It's, it's a time of learning about independence, learning about... Mm-hmm. Uh, the what you can accomplish outside as you as you move into from the st- the standpoint of having a highly regulated school day to having something where it's like oh you've got a lot of time and you can choose what to do with that time mm-hmm. so um, a lot of memories there so yeah now were you friends with Mr. Barrier in high school uh, yeah so we played on the baseball team okay and Gardner was Gardner was totally sandbagging on your podcast. And he kind of has to because he's the headmaster and he wants everybody to believe that, you know, if you follow the system, if you stick to the plan. But Gardner is, is one of those sort of preternaturally brilliant people. And he won't tell you this. Um, but mathematically speaking, his mind just works in ways that are so far beyond people that it, it's kind of like he can be relaxed and chill. Um, so... Yeah, Gardner and I were on the baseball team, and the baseball team at the time was, uh, it was the place where a lot of people were, we were coached by Tim Schof, and uh, Coach Schof was a, a very much in the laissez-faire model, um, mm. which we had a lot of autonomy yeah. uh, from the high school standpoint, and that was that's been the source of some contention in the alumni groups because they're like, man, you baseball guys got away with everything. And I don't know necessarily that we did, but uh, Coach Schof was definitely of the mindset that uh, as, as seniors, my senior year specifically, we, we took a lot of, uh, of uh, I guess, we took charge of the direction that we were going to go with it. So that was... Um, yeah, Gardner and I Gardner and I are very, very close. I, I love him dearly. <clears throat> Do you remember if it was a, a winning season, even oh, yeah. with the hands off? It was? Yeah, it was a, it was a we had struggled a little bit my junior year and part of that too, um, I was uh initially a third baseman on the team and then I switched to catcher my senior year. Mm. And so we went from we had a, a, a pitcher named Michael Strickland who was a junior and we we were Paces co-champions my senior year. Um, we made the playoffs, which meant that we went down to Columbia 
South Carolina to play Hammond. And we lost down there in the first round of the playoffs. But driving to Columbia was a weird uh, thing for, you know, it was a long trip for a high school baseball game. Yeah. What were some of your other uh, extracurricular activities that you participated in on campus? So I was involved in the, uh, I was involved in the service club with Mr. Danforth as the advisor. He had me do, um, he had me host these talent shows, which I was not an MC. Like I was not, I didn't come from that background. I came from, I was involved in uh, plays here uh, with Mr. Funk, but um, Mr. Danforth came up to me and he's like, do you want to host this talent show? And you know, not knowing uh, any better, I just said, sure. So I had to like navigate this space of emceeing a show in which it was an all school show. So it had to be appropriate. Um, and then I had to like basically create these little spots where I would come in and introduce the talent. And you, you have to be, um, there's a certain level of snark that you can get away with when it's just in the high school space. Yeah. But you have to, when it's, when it's, you know, a kindergartner that's playing a piano recital, you like have to be warm and welcoming to that. Yeah. At the same time, like there were people who were in a band, there were high schoolers that were in a band and you need to kind of be like, okay, well you high schoolers are in your little band. Like that's cool. You need the, the right amount of, yeah. of, uh, uh, sarcasm combined with, um, I don't know exactly the word for it. It's like sarcasm towards upper schoolers and right. then sort of supporting the right. lower schoolers. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So we had that kind of thing in middle school, spring fling, they called okay. it. It was like the, the talent show. It was all middle school though. So it was like eighth graders in middle school. We were the big, big mm-hmm. ones on campus. And that was so fun. What kind of student were you? Um, I can tell you exactly like statistically where I was. Um, SAT scored, if you remember that. Uh, it was, so I did, this is ridiculous, um, 7, 10, 6, 90. So I did 1,400 on the SAT, um, which, you know, uh, wow. I was 16th in the class uh, of 52 uh, because, one, there were a lot of smart people in, in our class. We were a very large class at the time. I think the class prior to us had something like 30 people or so, mm-hmm. and we had 52. We were a big, uh, boisterous class that came through. Everyone just wanted to be with Gardner Barrier and skip along. That's- right. Well, Gardner Barrier, definitely. Um, <laughs> the, uh, so I was, I was a student, and particularly like coming from Summit, I struggled a lot adjusting to applying myself. Um, particularly, I remember struggling in ninth grade at Summit in geometry. And just not, I, I did not at the time have the work ethic hmm. uh, that I necessarily needed to uh, survive high-level work. Actually, it was, um, I took AP Biology my junior year. And I made a B in that class. And I think I got a four on the AP test. But that was a, a course where it's like I didn't get an A in the class. But I had to work extremely, extremely hard yeah. for the B. And that was more valuable to me than, than classes where I could just go through and, you know, not do anything and, and still survive on the grades. And so it, it, the, the process of Forsyth for me became a process of decoupling my sense of expectation and achievement mm-hmm. from the actual work that I was doing. Um, because you get to a point where 
when you are passionate about something and you do it and you do it on of your own volition, like that becomes your interest and that becomes the thing that you, you focus on as opposed to be, you know, doing the things that you're doing for a grade or for achievement. Right. Um, so I was, I was a middling student, but I had potential, but I needed to be, you know, guided in directions. Would you say that maths maths and sciences were harder for you than English? No, I was was pretty much right down the, uh, I mean, I'm English by choice, but I actually think that like math and sciences come easier to me. Mm. English for me, starting out in 10th grade, especially you had to deal with this interpretive element to it. And um, it was something that didn't necessarily come easy to me because you're writing something and you have to defend it and you're like, okay, this is an abstract notion. Abstract thought became a, uh, a way in which I could attach meaning that wasn't necessarily in the form of a right answer. Mm-hmm. And I was much better um, as a student initially on that math side. Um, but it actually turned out to be a little bit weird because nowadays I view math more abstractly. And I think that, I mean, if you go and talk to Gardner about math, Gardner is fantastic at it and has this like clear focused brain on it and my brain doesn't do that my brain is like oh well you know let's talk about poetry as it relates to math and the way that you can like find these these connected dots there and it all gets scrambled you i mean you've talked to me about math and you'll be like okay we go off on 700 different tangents whereas gardner's just like clear focused here's your point for what's ahead yeah for what's ahead Now, you said you chose English. That was your choice. And you, after graduating FCDS, you got your BA in English from Clemson. Correct. But I initially went to Clemson um, as a general engineering student. Okay. And I was, my plan was I was going to major in engineering, chemical engineering, because it was the hardest. Um, I was going to walk on the baseball team. Um, I was an all-state baseball player my senior year, but that's, you know, we're reliving all those things. Um, and I was going to minor in religion. And then I kind of had this, there used to be this David Carradine show called Kung Fu. And he would, he like walked the earth. I was like, that's what I'll do. I'll, I'll walk the earth. And, uh, none of those things happened. One, you make it through a year of Clemson in engineering, and then you go into, uh, your specific field. So I made it like about a month in chemical engineering and I simply was not going to do the work. I went to it as a, as a person who was like, I, I think that I was attracted to it because as I tell you, chemical engineering is the hardest, uh, major, but I had no interest whatsoever in fluid dynamics. And if you're not going to do the work, um, it behooves you not to do it because it gets really hard really quickly. So I was doing at the time I was involved in like theater shop stuff and I was, I was acting in plays and I was actually doing more hands on building within the theater shop. And Clemson did not have a theater major, um, but being an English major allowed me to spend a lot of time Mm -hmm. going and building sets and things like that, like working with power tools in the shop. And I was like, for me, that that combined, okay, here's a tactile experience that you can have. And if you combine that with an abstract uh, artistic approach to it, it, it combines a bunch of different things that were of interest to me. One, which was like a collaborative environment, um, hands-on technical work, and then combining those with theoretical, artistic, 
I guess, hypotheticals. Um, so that those that kind of mix of it was what was really uh, intriguing for me at the time. And uh, is that why you chose Clemson? Was the opportunity for engineering, and then oh yeah, opportunity, opportunity for, engineering for engineering was why you chose. Okay. Yeah, my my great grandfather was the director of agricultural extension there in the 1930s. Um, and so my grandfather was born in Clemson and uh, grew up there. He I wound up going to the Naval Academy, and then he did a um, he got his uh, master's from MIT in aeronautical engineering. Uh, I have seen his master's thesis, and I can read it. Um, it is words. I do not understand it. So you come from a smart background. Uh, yes. Uh, I mean, some more than others. <laughs> well, East Bend. East Bend is so... I was born in Winston. Okay. My parents... My dad is originally from Winston. Um, my parents were both... My dad had just finished Wake Law School when I was done, and my mom went to Wake Law School after I was I was born. So I was actually born closer to Wake's campus. We moved out to East Bend when I was in seventh grade. There's a they they purchased a piece of property out there that has uh it's about 120 acres. Nice. And then after Clemson you went to Naropa University mm -hmm. in Boulder, Colorado for yep. graduate school. Yes. What did you study at Naropa and can you tell me a little bit about that experience? So at the time I was looking for something that was a little bit um, avant-garde. Um, the thing that I studied at Naropa was based off the pedagogy of Jacques Lecoq, who's a French theater teacher. Okay. Um, the most, probably the most famous graduate of the Lecoq program was Ju Julie Taymor, who had just produced The Lion King. Uh, okay. And so, and The Lion King stage production, which was involved um, a lot of puppets and a lot of like movement based uh, not necessarily dance but but basically a choreography of theatrical invention and so the Lecoq had died in 97 and the head of the pedagogy was looking to found a school in North America um, what they were seeking at the time and what Naropa provided was the accreditation in France They don't necessarily care about your accreditation. They're just like, oh, you went to school. It's no problem um, But in North America, they're like, okay, you have to go through this accreditation and you know, like you have to you have to have a certain amount of uh, Core curriculum and yeah, and, like and first death has to go through that too. Exactly. Yeah, so uh, Because there was a there was in California there, there's a school called Dell'Art, which was based on a lot of like the Commedia Dell'Art, and they spent probably 20 years getting accredited. Like it's, it's a very long yeah. process if you don't have it initially. So Naropa had that accreditation, and then they linked up with these these people that were coming from the French school, and um, they they kind of had a, a disagreement because the the leaders of the pedagogy were saying we need to be in a gigantic world city. We need to be in a big, you know, Paris or Berlin or London or something like that. And they're like, isn't Boulder great? And Boulder yeah. is great. It, it's, it's a fantastic little city, but um, it's not, it's not uh, the same thing as Berlin. Um, so they, the, you had these kind of like competing academic elements in there and we were very isolated. We had some interaction with a lot of like the Naropa people, but a lot of my program was a self-contained group where we had, we had what was called. So after 68, they had the, um, the student protests in France and Lecoq basically responded to the student protests 
by allowing the students to guide their own work. So we would get a weekly assignment. Mm -hmm. For instance, one of the weekly assignments was called the, it was like a, a, about the size of this table, about three meters, you tell an epic story. And this is a gestural language uh, exercise. And so we did, we recreated Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark in a, in a three by three box. And you have to do that on a scale and it's, it's reversing a lot of your instincts. So if you want to show something that's very, very large in scale, you actually show it in miniature. If you want to show something that's, that's tiny, you make it bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's, we would do that over the course of a week and we would show these things at the end of the week. And, you know, this is 40 hours of work a week going into something that, I mean, there were certain days where you would get into it. And I remember one where we got probably 30 seconds into our um, presentation and you hear stop and you're like, okay, what's happening? And it's like, you did it all wrong. Um, but I mean, there's, there's no necessarily, there's not a grade attached to it, but you're like, okay, I'm making this theater and I'm building this thing out of literally nothing. And I'm trying to use physicality. I'm trying to use, you know, the, the scope of my body as a physical instrument. Um, so that was very, very different than what I was doing mostly in traditional kind of like acting classes and things like that. Um, and you enter that space for two years okay. and it's a very, it's a very rigid pedagogy. And, um, as a result of that, when you come out of it, you're kind of like, wow, there's this amazing, uh, there's this amazing freedom, but that freedom is oftentimes not what you need to make something. One of the very key lessons that I remember from it is that oftentimes when you create a limitation for yourself, that's where creativity can, like if you just have open space, if it's just no limitations whatsoever, you get lost in in the potential of what could be. But as soon as you add one limitation to it, as soon as you say, okay, I'm going to make a scene where I don't speak, then you have to find interesting ways to solve that problem. Yeah. And so that can be as like providing, uh, providing now too many limitations can make it, you know, an mm-hmm. impossible challenge, but just enough stress to make something that challenges you and throws you off balance, putting yourself in those positions can provide you with creative solutions to the problems. And it, that's really like one of the most interesting elements that I've always sort of kept with me is like throw yourself off balance and see where you go and where you wind up might not be where you expect it, but it's like the results there, the results of, of risk of the results of throwing yourself into a position where you're, you don't know where you're going to land. That's where it's like, that's where you get like interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting take on it of you have to set the limit to have the freedom right. to create. Now, what was your first job once you graduated from Naropa? Um, was it anything in, uh, the acting or so I, I had a job for six months after Clemson okay where I was at Old Salem Tavern wearing knickers uh, serving chicken pie um, as a server uh, I came back from Naropa and I actually went into um, wine production in North Carolina um, and I had this view at the time kind of like of sustainability as a as a way to uh, I guess grow. Um, but, 
North Carolina wine industry, you know, I, I became very interested in the way in which the land was changing. And um, at the time, this was probably been 2004, 2005, the North Carolina wine industry was, it was having a, a significant period of growth. Uh, the difficulties in it that, that I ran into there were tied to the scale of production. I remember being in um, meetings with uh, agricultural economists. And they, these were people who came from upstate New York where they grow acres and acres of juice grapes. And um, you have to, like, the economies of scale there. At the time, the, the largest vineyard in North Carolina was something like 50 acres. And they're like, oh, that's your bare minimum of what you need yeah. to, like, do volume-wise. So if you can't do that volume, you have to do quality. And we were not at a state where we could quite do the quality that we needed. And we weren't as, there was not a way for us to do the volume that we needed. And so you, you, you find that different balance of like, am I, am I churning out this massive amount of, of stuff at, that I can do at cost versus can I do it at a, at a, such a high level that it's, um, that it makes it worthwhile. And Oregon actually started their wine industry back in the seventies and they were able to highlight Pinot Noir, which is, you know, the kind of like mystic grape for people. Cause mm -hmm. there's, I mean, there are entire movies about people's allure with Pinot Noir, but, um, they were able to do it at a, at a high level. And North Carolina was at the time it was seeking, seeking its own identity there. And it was, um, that, that identity was still something that they were looking to find because it's a question of how do you balance that, the need for cost effectiveness with the efforts to produce something that's like truly wonderful. Mm -hmm. And I mean, like, I love North Carolina wine. It's it's still a question I would ask of them. Now your resume is very diverse, mm -hmm. and adding three-time Jeopardy champion to it doesn't really clarify anything. No. And no, you're also you're also a certified EMT. Yeah. What what went into getting your EMT certification? Was that part of the nursing uh, studies that you've been doing? Um, I wanted to be out of restaurants. So after after Naroba, I. I sort of skipped over the, the part where I go to Chicago and become a sommelier. And then New um, Mexico. New Mexico and then back here. Right. So we skip over a lot, but fast forward to about 2018 and I just kind of, I'd been doing the stuff with my niece and, and I just said, you know, I, I want to not focus on, because I, I reached a point in restaurants in North Carolina where I was like, what am I doing here? The, the level of training that I have, if I really want to pursue restaurants, I need to be pursuing it in a place that is commiserate with the skill and the attention to detail that I, that I would expect of myself, but I'm not there and I don't want to be there. Mm -hmm. And so <clears throat> when you try to like balance that portion of your life and the reason that I came back here was to take care of my niece. And so it, it, it uncoupled the expectation that I had of myself from the um, from the the need necessarily to be defined by what I was doing for a profession, and so that decision led me to say, okay, well, let's go and look at this EMT stuff. And I completed my EMT uh, certification in February of 2020. I was cast in a play 
at that same time. And I said, well, I'll just go get a job once the play goes up. And the play was scheduled to open, I think, March 20th of 2020. Uh, so it never happened. Yeah. And as the, as the pandemic was encroaching, I looked at what we were doing. And I looked at the inadequacies within the supply chain. And I looked at the way in which safety equipment wasn't available. Mm -hmm. And I just said, I don't need to throw myself into that. I do not. Fortunately, I'm in a position where I don't have to make a decision here. But, you know, my background being in working in restaurants, I, I probably could have made more money working in restaurants than initially starting as an EMT. Um, which is a different conversation to have. Uh, but neither of those professions, neither throwing myself into a restaurant during the pandemic nor throwing myself into an EMT situation uh, were, were good options. Yeah. And that's, that's not unique to me. A lot of people were facing having to make very, very difficult choices about what they were looking, whether you are, making money or whether you are protecting yourself, whether you're protecting mm -hmm. the, the people around you like that, that's a decision that, that you had to make. And so my sister was, my sister's a veterinarian and she was working throughout the pandemic. And so for me, the decision to be able to provide childcare, whatever I made as an EMT during that time, it was going to go out the door in childcare costs. Mm -hmm. So it's like, fortunately I was in a position where I can say I can provide that and maintain some level of stability for my niece you know she was in fourth grade when it started she's now in sixth grade um but uh that level it, it just said okay we don't have to necessarily attach yourself to the idea that um you're you are defined by the way in which you make money and so many people get wrapped up in what you do yeah i mean it's the, it's the question that sort of defines mm -hmm defines jeopardy like you've got somebody who's you know a doctor or a nurse or th these things like those definitions that you seek um provide a context but they don't provide the full story and so for me like and that was part of like my strategy in jeopardy with with the stay-at-home uncle stuff was that i kind of wanted to use that one i kind of knew that it would be entertaining i didn't know that it would be to the extent that it was yeah but there have been some some memes and i was reading through some twitter things to keep people calling you uh jeopardy zaddy oh yeah okay and yeah <laughs> yeah i i i will admit on this podcast that i had a, a zaddy explained to me and so you know i appreciate yeah. that james and and getting called like uncle whatever like mm -hmm. the stay-at-home uncle and nursing student was a great cover right. for how smart you are Right, which it actually lit lasted for one episode, because when you are when you're on Jeopardy, you're in a pool of sixteen people, and you kind of like there's this sort of focus, mm -hmm. right? Like there was a guy that um, who I Andres who played in my second game, mm -hmm. who is an incredibly smart kid. He's twenty one years old, um, and he's going to do amazing, amazing things. But from the standpoint of the way in which every contestant was wary of Andres simply because his bio had Cornell in it. Yeah. And it was like that was like if he had been able to just say that he was a his major even like allow that from a from a Jeopardy gameplay standpoint, uh, he should be proud of what he's you know, 
accomplished. But from a Jeopardy gameplay standpoint, every single person looked at Andreas as a threat because mm-hmm. they said, oh, there's the Cornell guy. There's a the Cornell guy. And to the extent that I was trying to downplay yeah. those elements, I mean, if I'd gone in as a sommelier or, you know, actor, created physical theater artist or whatever, like it just wouldn't have had the same. For me, I was trying to position it as like, Nobody, I don't want anybody yeah. to take me as a threat. That lasted for one game because once you're the champion, people, all eyes are on you. All eyes are on you. Yeah. And then in, after my fourth game, there's this very distinct feeling of like all the focus goes away from you. That's a very interesting space to be on the Sony lot. And be like, I could go anywhere. It's a power <laughs> vacuum. Yeah. And it, once it's sucked away from you, you're like, oh, nobody's like paying attention to me whatsoever. And that, that's a really interesting feeling. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we can. We can talk about Jeopardy stuff all day, but are you still in contact with some of the people you played against and beat? Um, so I have an interview coming up with two people on Monday that I am two people that I am actually intimidated by trivia wise. Uh, one is Sarah Jet Rayburn and the other is Jennifer Quayle. Um, Jennifer Quayle is an eight time champion and a, a tournament of champions runner up. And Sarah Jet Rayburn is a four-time champion, and um, she was in the Tournament of Champions. So I'm interviewing with them Monday, and, uh, well, shortly for the people that are listening to this not in real time. Um, and the thing with it is that they, they, they reach out, out to me, and there are very few people in the entire world, because Jeopardy is like a balance thing, right? Like Madame Modio... I would be intimidated by because of the way that he plays Jeopardy. But Madame Modio and I, I mean, I, I could go toe to toe with Madame Modio on knowledge base. I'm completely comfortable saying that. Um, Jennifer and Sarah, like Jeopardy, like the trivia base of it, they are insanely smart. And I'm like, okay, like that's like for what I was, for where the space where I was in, like I'm walking into a room where I'm going to be intimidated by people and I'm not often um so they won't hear this before that so no they won't this will probably be out early March (laughs) right yeah no they they will if they go back and listen to this they can know going into my interview with them that they that I was totally like oh man those are those are people that are because you know there are people that are better on the buzzer than me there are people that understand wagering strategy better than me well that's an art also is getting the buzzer yeah and that was one that I was like I never fully got it at the, at the whole time that I was there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but yeah, like Sarah and Jennifer, you're just like, I don't know how you know all that stuff. Um, and Sarah, Sarah, or excuse me, uh, Jennifer's also a wine tasting consultant. So I'm like, all right, let me go through all my sommelier stuff too. Because, you know, not a lot of people have the array of stuff that I have in my background. But um, yeah, when you meet people that are, actually like the real deal you're like whoa whoa that because there are a lot of smart people that that don't succeed on jeopardy yeah now you talked about acting being in your background and you are part of the bunker dogs improv comedy group can you tell me a little bit about uh, your improv experience and what what that's like um initially when i moved to chicago in 2006 uh that was the sort of the goal there was to be closer to a cultural center and Chicago is famous for its improv. Um, and I was particularly interested in long form. And it, the idea is kind of following an organic seed 
and I mean, the, 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 the popular notion is that it's just completely off the cuff and you, you do that. But what that belies is the fact that there is a, a number of structures and a number of impulses that you learn to follow when you learn to follow improv. Um, and one of the things that, that most intrigues me about improv is that it is a surrendering of self to the people that you're playing yeah. with and that your job as an improviser is to take care of the people that are playing with you and to not worry about yourself, to trust that they are going to do the same thing to you and to take care of um, the people that you're playing with on stage. And that's a difficult thing to do um, under the, the spotlight of, of a performance. Uh, so learning to trust people and learning to um, be generous in, in the way that you, uh, um, in the way that you approach it means that you, you get to a point where you stop worrying about the, these kind of performance initiatives where you say, I, I need to be funny or I need to be, you know, fantastic and just whatever I'm doing. It's just like, no, let yourself feel comfortable in the present moment and let yourself trust that the people that you're playing with are going to do that work for you. And that if you do the work for those people, like that's, that's the, that's the skill of it. Now I'd like to get back to the Jeopardy part of your life. As mm -hmm. you mentioned, you could talk about that all day. Uh, why did you take the initial Jeopardy online test? I, it was September, 2020. And you know, I don't, who knows when we're going to get out of this pandemic. Uh, I got 15 minutes. I got some internet. Let's, let's do it. So that was it that you just, on, and honestly, like the thing that I told the Jeopardy producers when I wrote my, cause they send you all of these questions and I used to, this is, uh, let's actually go back to Forsyth. I used to treat, um, the Forsyth alumni notes like it was my own personal, like kind of like Baron Munchausen blog. I used to tell them like all these tall tales, like I was <laughs> Kevin Costner's stunt devil. Or I remember I, I, I wrote, I think it was to summit. I wrote one time that I was, um, I, I got married and I was in Tampa and I, my wife and I had two sobs. It was like the most mundane thing that I could think of. And then they printed that and then people were like, oh wait, you were married. And I was like, no, no, no. Like it, you have to understand I was doing a bit. Um, the alumni director when they were reading there were probably like, what? Right. Yeah. And so I, I used to treat it as like a performance art piece. And I was like, oh yeah, you'll pub you'll publish whatever I send you. You know, like it's difficult to get published, but then you can take the alumni notes and you can just tell them whatever you want to. And it, you know, it, it is a kind of like, it got old after a little bit. Cause then they started to like actually publish it. And I was like, oh no, 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 no. I didn't mean for that. Like I needed an editor. I needed somebody to like come in and tell me what was funny. Um, uh, so, but Jeopardy sends you this thing and it's writing prompts. It's like, tell you these, these stories. And so I, I basically took that as an opportunity to define the narrative from it. I mean, I had a lot of people come up to me and we would talk about Jeopardy and we'd just say, oh, the contestant anecdotes are just the worst. And it's a difficult position to be in. You have about a minute to tell something interesting about mm -hmm. yourself. And if, if you get put on the spot and you say, you know, tell me the most interesting thing that you can, it's got to be family friendly. It's got to be, you know, all of these things. Yeah. And like, that's a difficult spot to put yourself in. And so kind of like the, the element of storytelling becomes an interesting thing where you just let yourself be and trust that 
whoever you are is, is interesting enough and it's interesting in ways that are not necessarily the way that you think of. If you think that you're the hero of the story, well, like just let yourself not be that. Just let yourself be in the story yeah. and, and find the interesting places that it goes. So that was in September, 2020, I just decided to, to take the test. And the thing that I told them when I was filling out all this paperwork was I would answer Jeopardy questions all day long with no money, no monetary incentive whatsoever. I just find that interest, the, the dynamic of taking these things and combining them to get to an answer as an interesting practice. Now it's, the rate at which you can successfully do that is contingent upon your physical state because your brain tires yeah, and you have to be in a place where you are hydrated and you know, all of these things. But, um, yeah, I was like, I would, I would play this game for no money. Um, but I will accept the money, but of course, uh, right. So what category were you hoping that you'd see? Which one flags. would you have just flags? I, I had 206 flags. Uh, nation flags. I had all the state flags too, but I like the very last thing that I learned was I went through and did all 206 flags so I could just go. And you didn't get a single flag question. The college championship apparently got flags. And I was like, yeah, you could have given, you could have thrown us one. So now Um, what are you planning to do with the money that you've won? I've seen that you're donating to multiple places like the Weaver fertilizer plant fire and Mm -hmm. things like that. Yep. Uh, so immediate response uh, that I wanted on that was the, obviously the fire and the evacuation. I I was pleased to see that they, the North Carolina general assembly announced that they were going to be, uh, no, no, I'm sorry. It might've been the Winston Salem, uh, or the Forsyth County commissioners have created a fund to help people there, but I wanted to provide some, uh, direct impact mm-hmm. for people that have been affected by that. And that's something that, you know, the, the fertilizer fire, it, you don't necessarily think of, like the fire is no longer there, but the impact yeah. of people that have had to move out and particularly because it happened around the first of February, like you're dealing with rent and the disruption that, that it causes there. Um, in addition to the fact that it's just kind of an amazing, the, the idea that, you know, these places exist mm-hmm. where, you know, I remember a few years ago the the explosion out in Texas, and I'm watching that unfold. And I'm like, what happened in Texas where you had a fertilizer plant just suddenly incinerate? Like yeah, that, that's if you get to that point, like we were very very lucky there. So especially with an old building like uh-huh. that, yeah. it's grandfathered into fire codes. And- right. Yep. Um, uh, I also I'm doing something with Forsyth Tech and their uh, general textbook fund. Um, textbooks, particularly when, once you get to college textbook, I mean, I'm sure they're not inexpensive here, but once you get to college, it becomes this whole hidden cost element yeah. where you're like, okay. And, and textbooks as a, as a, uh, I mean, it's essential for, to, to take class and things like that. But the, the expenses that we're putting on the education stuff are, are, um, something that I wanted to help out with. I'm also, uh, I talked to Yadkin County. Um, and fortunately Yadkin County is, uh, they are currently covered by a federal grant that eliminate, that pays for school lunches, but I wanted to do something with school lunch debt as well. Um, so I'm in conversations with, uh, Winston-Salem for South County schools, but like it's a program where if you, if you have a school lunch debt, you are limited, you will get something to eat, but it doesn't necessarily correlate with like 
balanced nutritional mm-hmm. diets and things like that. So I, I believe I'm a firm believer in without getting into politics of it, that we should not be creating debt structures for our children and that we should be uh, nurturing them in a way that is, uh, uh, does not, they're, they're not capable of entering into a debt contract yet. And so we shouldn't, we shouldn't attach any kind of, um, any notions of, of debt or shame, particularly to things like lunch or breakfast. Yeah. Well, it's a very generous way to use your Jeopardy money. Right. Uh, I also owe my niece a trip to Hawaii. So there you go. We got to figure out like her schedule is, I mean, my schedule is totally, we're like, okay, yeah, we can go whenever her schedule. Oh my gosh. She's, she's the hardest person to book in the world right now. Her entire summer. She's like, yeah, maybe just get with her secretary. Right. Yeah. Now I have three recorded questions, two from students and one from a teacher to sort of wrap us up. I'll play each of them for you and then you can respond. Okay. Arnov, seventh grade. What was it like during commercial breaks in Jeopardy? Okay. uh, The, my favorite part about this is Jeopardy is very, very dehydrating. So what you cannot see next to the podium there is that they have little tiny bottles of water. And um, so what, what they tell you is that you cannot drink the water until you see the producer on stage. So there's a producer named Karina who comes up and she gives you this uh, Taylor Swift. She always uses a Taylor Swift quote. She's like, if you get something wrong, if you do something wrong on Jeopardy, just be like Tay-Tay. Just shake it off. There you go. So every time I saw her, I was like, oh, I'm so thirsty. Like, it, it, I don't know what happened to me personally, but I would just absolutely house these bottles of water. I just, oh. <laughs> And like you can't you can't get water on your clothes you can't you know yeah you look like an an absolute buffoon um, but yeah seeing the commercial breaks where you get to drink water that was the the best part you also have sometimes they'll have like hair and makeup stuff come in and touch stuff up um, and that is a point as well where people would challenge um, potential wrong answers mm. I never challenged any potential wrong answers. Uh, but there were there, that's when you go and say, okay, when I answered this, was it, you know, it can get not contentious, but just, you know, what exactly do you mean? It's, it's high stakes. Right. Here, okay. I'll play the next one. Preston, seventh grade. Who all did you meet on set of Jeopardy? Okay, so uh, Mayim Bialik. Uh, Who was the host? The host, yes. Um which my generation knows her as Blossom. Like people nowadays know her from the Big Bang Theory. And my niece was very, very much insistent. So I told my niece on Thanksgiving when I was leaving, because um, I filmed on the 30th of November mm-hmm. of 2021. And I did not want to tell my niece until the very last minute because, you know, I just didn't want it going around her school and all this stuff. So um, the, my niece says to me, we did not know at that time whether it was going to be Ken Jennings or Mayim Bialik. She says, I really hope, I really hope that it's Mayim because she watches Big Bang Theory. And um, she's like, you know, I don't care if you win. I don't care about any of the other stuff. I want you to tell Mayim Bialik how big of a fan I am of her. <laughs> so I made sure we did promo photos before we played the game. So I made sure at the promo photo that I told Maya and like that. I also, mm, I told her that, and I forget exactly what I said, but Jimmy from the Clue Crew, who's now the stage manager, 
uh, he came up to me after my first win and he said, Hey, you know, Ken Jennings called and he said, you know, he's upset that, you know, he's, I, I, I forget the exact way that I phrased it, but it was in such a way that like Mayim was preferable to Ken. Uh. And, uh, so he said, Hey, Ken Jennings called. And obviously Ken Jennings hadn't called, but, yeah. uh, I was like, okay, cool. Like, and Jimmy came up to me later and he's like, I remember you from a zoom call that you did. I was like, okay. I mean, I remember, I remember Jimmy being in the, um, audition process for that. But the, the fact that he could remember that, because when I was on the zoom call, I was just, you know, a schlub trying to get on jeopardy. So, all right. Hi, Skip. This is Elizabeth, and I'm a teacher um, here at FCDS. I was wondering, what are some of your favorite books and podcasts? Okay. Um, podcasts. Uh, obviously this one. Obviously this one. Yeah. I have listened to every episode that has been released, and I'm still waiting. I'm waiting. I'm, uh, f- I'm just hitting my refresh button on my podcatcher, uh, waiting for the next one. Um. So I, I try to balance it out, and I get way behind on a bunch of stuff. Um, one of my favorite authors is Thomas Pynchon, and I'm going to answer that part first just because uh, we'll get it out of the way. He, he writes about kind of this post-war era of America. He's a recluse as well, which kind of fascinated me first. I, I remember he was he, – so he lives in New York now, but he hasn't given an interview since 19 – Maybe like I don't know if he's given an interview really, but he uh, he jumped out of a hotel window to avoid a reporter in Mexico City back wow. in the '60s. These like deep, sort of sprawling labyrinthine novels, um, which you kind of immerse yourself in. I, I I find that I read very very slowly these days. Um, there are some things that I read fast. I read history pretty fast, but like novels and stuff like that, I I read very, very slowly, um, because, uh, partially out of like, I, I actually like didn't love reading as an English major until I was about 25. And it became something where I was as an English major, I was very, very good at gleaning the information that I needed Mm -hmm. to, to know plot, to know. So what I could get on a, a reading quiz or a test or the way I could, you know, draw a metaphor within an essay. But, um, when I actually, once I got out of school, I really started to enjoy the process of reading a lot more. And it became something where it's like, that is, that's a time where you can just simply sit and read and not worry about connecting this to some sort of scholastic achievement. It can be something that you do for yourself. So the, probably the most famous of, of those is the crying of lot 49. Although Gravity's Rainbow is Gravity's Rainbow is out there and everybody should read it. It's big, it's dense, it's uh, paranoid. Um, uh, yeah, like, but it, but it once you actually like get into what it is, it's this. I mean, like, so he sent somebody to. So it came out in '73, and it won the National Book Award that year. It was supposed to win the like they did not give a Pulitzer that year. Uh, but I think at the National Book Award, Pynchon was like not- notoriously reclusive at that point. Somebody came out and was impersonating him at at this acceptance speech, which like only further adds to the myth. And it, so it, it's this kind of blend because 
it is very, very high literature. It's on the level of, you know, a James Joyce or something like that. But mm-hmm. the thing about it is like it deals with all of these colloquial art forms. So you'll get comic books, you'll get boys adventure books, you'll get these kind of like daring escapades blended into a novel format. And then you have prose there that will just blow your socks off. Like there's, there's probably not a better prose, uh, stylist in the, in the latter half of the 20th century than pension. So there, uh, podcast. Okay. So for news, the financial times does a 10 minute a day, uh, like little rundown of stuff, which is very, very good. I'm a big proponent of, um, basically like so much of our news has become filtered through like entertainment means. And what I don't mean like pop culture news. I mean stuff where it's like the, the purpose of the news is, is tied to advertising. And the financial times is one of the last bastions of places where you get like fully just like straight news. And that's, that's like a a fantastic source for that. Um, I try to do democracy now, which goes, which is probably like a little on the political spectrum, but they go in depth on a number of the things. Mm -hmm. And, um, actually one of their producers, uh, his father was a teacher at Wake Forest. Uh, so John Hamilton, whose mother taught me at summit, um, he's a producer at democracy now. And, um, his father just passed away, but his father was a teacher of Russian and Slavic languages, um, and also a bluegrass musician. So, um, what else do I listen to? Uh, the shutdown full cast, which I appeared on, which is nominally a, a college football podcast, but it goes into absurdist humor spaces. Uh, so things like jet ski crime, um, a number of different, uh, and I, you know, having been a guest on it, I guess I'm biased, but, uh, there, there are three places to get started. The financial times democracy now and, uh, uh, shut down full cast. My final question is what advice do you have for those listening? So specifically students or teachers? Um, I think something that I've been thinking about, particularly since I came from New Mexico was the way in which we solve problems specifically relates to the amount of care and investment that we're willing to put into a place. I knew as soon as Gardner was named head of school that Forsyth was in good hands. Mm -hmm. And having watched Forsyth from a distance since 97, um, I think that you you look at it in the ways in which it's been a period of, of vast transition from Gordon Bingham when I was here to Gardner. And it's something that I came to when I was in New Mexico living on the border. And this is prior to, you know, this is 2010. So it's before a lot of like the politics of the border get, uh, get escalated mm-hmm. and polarized. But what you see out there is you see the way in which the gaps that are provided when there are breakdowns in the social safety net create massive problems 
that don't get fixed just by throwing money at them. Mm. And so what I mean by that, and this is not to justify the behavior of drug cartels, right? Oh boy. Right? So, but, but drug cartels on the border have an outside presence because for young boys that are growing up who are nine and 10 years old, who don't have family structures there, the cartels are providing those services. Mm -hmm. They're providing stability. They're providing, uh, they're providing something that offers care. Now they're also doing it in gangster fashion. It's, it's a terrible and violent environment. But what it means is like the, I kept seeing money being thrown at it by the federal government, but the money that was being thrown at it was not solving the initial problem. Right. And so obviously Forsyth country day is just like the border crisis. No, 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 not at all. (laughs) Except when you view it through the stance of like, what are we actually solving here? The problem of education, right? So we view this in the way of saying, okay, money doesn't necessarily solve your problems. You have to be invested in the care, in the day-to-day care that it takes to foster a community. And if you can foster that community, one, you can save yourself a lot of money Mm -hmm. in the long run because that community provides levels of support and it provides uh, an area in which people can grow and thrive. And that type of loyalty that it breeds and that type of, uh, I guess, I guess taking care of each other, that, that caretaking aspect provides value that you cannot, uh, you can't replicate that just by simply saying, here's, here's a brand new shiny Mm -hmm. object, right? Yeah. You, You can have the object. The object is great. It's beautiful. We love the architecture. We love all of those things. But what really makes it is the way that people treat each other and the way that they support each other there. And so when Gardner was announced, you're like, that Gardner understands fully like the, the capacity of this as a working whole, not mm-hmm. just a facility, though the facilities are fantastic. I mean, they're so much further ahead than where I, when, when I was here in 97. Um, but that the community looks out for each other, that they take care of each other, and that they, um, they provide the space to grow and thrive and uh, just, yeah, that's it. Grow and thrive. That's all we got to do. There we go. Thank you so much. This has been absolutely very interesting, and I enjoyed it. Uh, same here. Let's do it again. Oh, okay. So can I pitch this to you? Yeah. Or do you want to keep this in or is this? We can keep it. You can. So here's what do we do, right? You can keep this in. You can throw it away. You can do whatever. Okay. This is, this can be like for the bonus subscribers. <laughs> you write Grinnell right? <laughs> and you tell him, I'm going to take a semester off and I'm going to get set up Gardner Barrier Mukbang, right? We're going to get some like sponsorship. We'll yep. get, you know, stamps.com. We'll get, uh, who else will we get? Casper mattresses. Yes. We'll get, I, you, you pick the platform too. Like I'm not the platform expert. I'm just giving you okay. the structure. It can be TikTok. It can be YouTube. I think YouTube longer content really. Right. Yeah. Right. 
I'm going to, I'll take care of like the individual episodes, like Gardner eats barbecue and reads okay. William Blake. Right. Like, yeah. But that like this, this whole thing, Gardner doesn't even know that he's, we're going to take control of Gardner's creative influencer career and we'll do that. And then you can grow a Grinnell. You'll get your like first continuing on the independent study thing. And then we will obviously like, you'll get the YouTube. What is it like the million subscriber plaque mm-hmm. and that can go up in your dorm. Perfect. And you know, like I, I don't need the YouTube subscriber plaque. You need that for like a swagged out dorm. Oh yeah. But Gardner will just force him to, uh, to do these mukbangs yeah. and read poetry. Right. I think he'll love this. Right. Or he could talk about math. We'll, we'll give him one episode where he talks about math and just be like, All yeah, right, that's his go talk about for Matt's last theorem and, uh, it'll be good to go. And, uh, you and I will, will reap the benefits of it. And then for, with, with the extra money, we will obviously plan all of our donations to the Forsyth Country Day fund and um you know we'll be legends thank you so much for listening to this episode of the for what's ahead podcast the goal of this podcast is to build community through sharing of ideas and stories so if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe the views and ideas expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of Forsyth country day school thank you